Welcome to Film Fight Club, the show where we don't talk about film, we fight about film. I'm Glenn Falkenstein from Falcon Screen, and we are joined by Chris Evans, a local Sydney filmmaker. Hello, hello. And Virat Nehru, a freelance writer and critic. Hello, everyone. Now, this is our second show. We kicked off last week. We're very excited. We've got a big show. We're talking Colossal. We're talking Star Wars spin-offs. We're talking film festivals in Sydney. But for the first part, we have to talk about the rules of Film Fight Club. And the first rule, as always, is you do not talk about Film Club. Second rule is you do not talk about Film Club. Third rule is when the ref says stop, the fight is over. Rule number four, only two to a fight. Rule number five, one fight at a time. Rule number six, the most important rule... No spoilers. And rule number seven, if this is your first night at Film Club, you have to fight. Now, we do have a special guest coming on later. It's their first night, and they're going to have to fight. But, the, but we're not fighting them. No, we're not fighting them. They'll be, be fighting. It's all right. But the, we're going to start off with the big news in the film world this week, and that is actually sad news that um, the great director, Jonathan Demme, passed away at the age of 73. Now, uh, he has made, he's a ubiquitous filmmaker. He has made many films over decades. He made many comedies, which we'll discuss uh, shortly in the 70s and 80s. He made Philadelphia later in his career, which many of you will know, the Manchurian Candidate remake, Ricky and the Flash most recently, the Justin Timberlake musical documentary on Netflix. And, but for me, uh, the film that he made is, that is most significant, that is in my all-time top 10, which will be known to, I think, everyone, is The Silence of the Lambs. Now, this film, you can, you can trace the modern interest with serial killers, with profiling, back to this film. This is a masterpiece. And it is a credit to, to Deme that they took the actual weakest of the three novels, it was the middle in the trilogy, and turned it into what is, in my view, up there with Casablanca and very few others with a film that is nearly flawless. This is a film where the villain, Dr. Hannibal Lecter, due in part to Hopkins and Deme's direction, was voted the number one villain of all time. Uh, it is a film that is being copied and parried, the famous walk down to the cell, uh, which many of you will know as being, you've seen it in the many films, but it was done best by Deme. It is um, the, Scott Glenn, Jodie Foster, he made a phenomenal picture and he will be very missed, but he has made many good films in his career. Uh, probably my favorite or one of my favorites is Rachel getting married. Um, certainly the best recent film he's made, in my opinion. Uh, this film exemplifies something that a lot of those who knew Deme well spoke about it and in light of his passing, which is his huge amount of warmth, love for humanity and empathy. This film radiates such a generosity of spirit. Uh, this film is just pitch perfect in its direction because it gives the material the exact right amount of space. It's a family drama, you know, in the indie spirit with a lot of people yelling at each other and past traumas being drawn back up. But a, a lesser director could easily have smothered the audience with this material. But Deme uses it to bring out absolutely beautiful performances from Anne Hathaway and Rosemary DeWitt in, in my opinion, career-high performances. Um, he gives this material the exact right amount of room to breathe. And a big contributor to this is his um, distancing himself a little bit from the script to bring out a new element in the film, which is its big focus on music. There is improvised music running throughout this film, um, throughout the house where the drama is going on. And this reflects the emotional instability of the family and the protagonist played by Anne Hathaway. But And it also gives the movie this freewheeling energy where you never know where it's going to go. And this music ends up being used as a really, in my opinion, innovative way 
to bring the film to a climax where a lot of the material in the script was, um, that was meant to wrap up the plot was used, sorry, was replaced by a extended musical performance, which just brings all of the emotion running through the, the drama up to this point, to the center, and brings about catharsis and release just through pure human joy and performance. Um, it's a beautiful film, and it deserves your viewing. It's a great point that you talked about Rachel getting married, Chris, because the movies I really liked with Jonathan Demme are the movies that people kind of have forgotten that he made. And those are the, his comedies back from the 80s. So I want to talk about Melvin and Howard, a movie that I love to this day, and it holds up really well. You know, and that's one of the things about Demme that I want to talk about. His really sincere depiction of the American dream and its paradoxical nature. You know, the idea that everyone wants to get rich. Everyone wants to have that perfect suburbia life. But yet, we don't have any patience. And it's something that we all can relate to. You know, everyone wants to do it now. We don't need to wait. And so you have the classic middle-class loser character that's been exemplified in American comedy since then called Melvin. And he is played by Paul Lamatt. And he meets the reclusive billionaire Howard Hughes, played by Jason Robards. It's a beautiful coming together of two eclectic characters. And then there are other characters there as well. There's Mary Steenberger playing Melvin's wife, whom he divorces twice and then remarries. And she has the compulsion to dance in the entire film. So she gets up and dances in whatever opportunity she makes. And there's a beautiful sequence in which Rolling Stone's Satisfaction plays at a strip club. And... You know, Melvin's wife is dancing while it's doing that. And it's a hilarious sequence. And it's got a lot of humanity to it. And I think that's what Mel- sort of Demet's comedies really got it right. The heart of the 70s comedies. Comedies like Halashby's Shampoo, which really talked about the American spirit and what it meant to have those kind of characters. I just find remarkable that this director is his range. I mean, you spoke about Virati's comedies earlier in the 80s. He made many dramatic films later. But one of the films we haven't mentioned is Philadelphia, perhaps one of them he's best known for. This was a film made in 1993 at the height of the AIDS epidemic, uh, where it was a very taboo subject. It was a very difficult subject to broach. And he made a very confronting film about it. And it's still a very powerful film today, and still a very relevant film today. Uh, Tom Hanks, known as a bit of a playboy, uh, you know, his, this was. But then he made this. Denzel Washington, a young, handsome star who was in all these action films, and suddenly, no, he went for this drama. And today, it is one of the films both of them are most well remembered for. I also think uh, Talking Heads fans will note that Deme was behind Stop Making Sense, which many people think is one of the greatest musical uh, documentaries or concert films of all time. The man had incredible range. He could tackle hard thrillers, uh, light comedies, and everything in between. Um, one of his very underrated films, in my opinion, is Something Wild, which uh, demonstrates this. It's a film that starts with really uh, wild, absurd comic material, but then Deme takes the material so seriously that he's able to effortlessly pull off a tonal shift that brings out the darkness that's underlying a lot of the strange, funny things that set up in the first act. Yeah, Something Wild is a great example of a road movie before it became a caricature through National Lampoon films. You know, now when we think of road movies, we think of that kind of We're the Millers kind of dynamic, you know, exaggerated characters finding themselves in even more exaggerated, absurd situations. Nothing is serious. I know, but that's what Demi got right. His humor comes not from the elaborateness of the gag, but from the humanness, humanity of the characters. Mm. These are noble people trying to just get by. There's something real about that. There's nothing forced. And we kind of connect with that. His films feel genuine above all. Definitely. 
And that's not something you can say about a lot of today's American comedies. They're not genuine. They're largely farcical. And but here's someone, I mean, the most recent Ricky in the Flash had got quite a decent reception, but it was a family drama, it was a family comedy. And like with Rachel getting married, it ended with this amazing crescendo. And he brought, but what I found particularly interesting about that and others, that he took great actors and brought amazing performances from them, whether it be Meryl Streep, whether it be John Voight and Meryl Streep again in The Manchurian Candidate. Not the best remake in and of itself, but still a very... Uh, interesting film and uh, one that's still very prevalent and relevant today. And now we have a very special guest, Angela Blake, the director of the Smartphone Film Festival, SF3. Angela, thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. So SF3, there really isn't anything quite like it in Australia. Tell us about it. Yeah, so SF3 is the Smartphone Flick Fest. It is Australia's only dedicated international smartphone film festival. So we are open to filmmakers of all ages, uh, of all levels. So we have absolute beginners all the way through to professional filmmakers. Uh, from We've had from over 40 countries around the world. So in the past two years, we've had uh, over 600 entries. Um, and we last year predominantly focused uh, very heavily on our Sydney and Australian media. Um, to try to get local filmmakers making films. And uh, I think we went from about 10% Aussie content to 90% within a year. So that's something that's a great passion of ours is getting Australians to make films uh, on their smartphones because uh, the smartphone is the democratisation of the film industry, really. It's never going to replace a big camera um, people still shoot on film, but digital came along, you know, and so it, the, the, it keeps revolutionizing the industry and the smartphone and the tablet is just um, the latest incantation of that. So we really are showcasing the talents of people who don't have big budgets, who just have a phone, uh, who can now shoot in full HD. Absolutely. And I've been to the past uh, few festivals and it's just amazing to see it grow from strength to strength and see it get such a phenomenal audience, but also a grassroots audience. Um, What do the festival patrons have to be excited about for this year? Yeah, well, it is completely unknown, even to us. Uh, We have just launched for entries, which means uh, we have one entry already, um, which came in before we launched, which is amazing. I haven't even watched the film yet, so I like to kind of wait till the end. Uh, Ali and I, my co-founder Ali Crew, we curate the festival. So we do select all the finalists. We watch uh, each film separately and come together. And then we hand it over to a panel of judges. So we are excited because last, just from the leap enough from our first year to our second year, as Glenn, you will have probably noticed, I think you'd agree with me, um, the quality of films was just crazy amazing, so much so that we had to add an extra category, which was the first filmmaker, the film breaker which is named after our major sponsor, Jason Van Gendren, who's a great smartphone filmmaker from the Pocket Film Academy. Um, because we we didn't want to put off people from making films, so we've got a first-time filmmaker award um, to encourage yeah, the grassroots filmmakers, people who have never made a film. Um, so, I mean, just the leap in that first to second year was amazing. So now we have sevens. We have Samsung 7, the iPhone 7. People are really getting into the filmmaking on their phone. So I think it's going to be crazy amazing. Absolutely. And that uh, Film Breaker winner this year, um, it was filmed in Surrey Hills. It was filmed at a terrace. It was about yeah. a major issue about PTSD. And Liam Fallon, his uh, film was just excellent. It was one of a number First of time films. ever film. Like, he's an actor, but he, I think he filmed it in two days or something. It was just... Amazing! It's an amazing film. Um, it, uh, yeah, 
it deserved to win. He also won Best Actor. I mean, he won other awards, you know. It was just such a great film. Uh, first ever film. So, I mean, really, just get your phone out of your pocket and shoot, right? I think it's really important and a great thing that you have this Film Breaker Award because I think a lot of the local film festivals we've had that have started out as something to encourage beginners and grassroots filmmaking have become completely overtaken by professional film production uh, crews and, 100%, and ad yeah. agencies or, or people who have a lot of industry experience. As you were uh, saying in your introduction, I think the most interesting thing about the smartphone is the way that it, as the technology has gotten better, we're providing something which is of a good enough technical quality that it can hold its own against more professionally produced content. Mm -hmm. And that's really giving the power to people who you know, really have never made a film before. Um, and I think it's really important to give a space for absolute beginners to get their thing seen and uh, to uh, get it in front of an appreciative audience. Yeah, well, that's one of the reasons we started the festival um, was because we, Ali and I met during Short and Sweet Theatre Festival, um, which lets anyone get up on stage, anyone write a play, anyone direct. It's amazing. And we thought there's nothing like this for films. Um, and then I'd just been living in America for a couple of years and um, I was like, oh, you know, in America people were starting to do things on their phones. It was a very new thing because technology just kind of started getting good. And then Ali and I were like, let's combine these two ideas, um, which is where SF3, we, we started that festival. Being aware that, you know, you know, the biggest festivals around here in Australia, the the indie ones, you now need to have a celebrity in your film. You need to have $50,000. I mean, no one has that. Mm. And we're super aware that we never want to get like that. I mean, our winning films last year, we still joke like Hugo Weaving and David Wenham were, was in our winning film. But it, it wasn't like about that at all. You know, it's like... Um, the film itself was amazing, but then we thought we need this Film Breaker Award mm. to make sure that people still can make their first film and win a big prize. Yeah, and like even with smartphone films now, I'm getting that attention because of like films like Tangerine, for example. Mm. You know, they're getting the focus that they deserve, and you suddenly realize that you have this very empowering tool in your pocket that everyone mm. carries a smartphone. Yeah. You know, and anybody can be a filmmaker, and that's quite liberating, you know, as for anyone who's I interested in films. As uh, someone who's been following really grassroots independent filmmaking for quite a while now, I noticed that as the the tools that people can buy for not much money um, got better and better in quality and lower in price, um, somehow instead of this empowering a lot of people, uh, many, many people got obsessed with chasing incredibly professional technical standards which are on par with what's being seen in Hollywood. So the opposite of what people who have been looking for an explosion of new talent, um, the opposite of what they wanted to see happen ended up happening. So I think the smartphone, given how it, it, it in no way pretends to be a professional film camera, yet offers incredible technical quality, could be the antidote to this, because it truly is a uh, you know no-cost alternative um, with no pretensions of yeah. cinema you know, standards, and yet can hold its own when you treat it that way. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, I mean, no one in the smartphone film business, I mean, we don't say we're going to replace RED or, you know, any kind of camera. Mm. We're just about giving other people a chance. Even I people who shoot, like 
um, Sean Baker from the Tangerine Director, he shoots normally on, you know, pro cameras and just decided for aesthetic reasons and budget reasons to shoot Tangerine on a phone. Now he's gone back to traditional filmmaking, you know. So I think it can be a choice as well. Um, it's just an alternate camera, really. Right. And I think the the industry is... I don't know. It's kind of it's a really exciting field, smartphone filmmaking, and we partner with lots of festivals around the world who are smartphone festivals, and it, we just kind of all like help each other and share and meet up. And um, we're starting very exciting this year. We're starting a global mobile film awards, which um, where the one of the founding members with Susie Botello, who is from the International Mobile Film Festival in San Diego, so it's her festival, which is on this weekend. Um, so she's invited us to be the founding members of that. It's essentially going to be like the Oscars of smartphone filmmaking. So our best film award um, winner will go automatically into that. So we kind of wow. we're all banding together to kind of because we just love films and filmmakers and grassroots filmmaking really. And what I found remarkable, just on the grassroots level, there was a great film at the last festival, Bubbles Don't Lie. So good. Oh, was so hilarious. <laughs> and the presenter was saying you had to do some guerrilla filmmaking to get some of the shots. Yeah. And they can only do that with a smartphone. Uh, Sean Baker had the same experience. Do you find that some of the films you've got in the festival are different because of using this medium in that sense? Yeah, definitely. Um, you do get access because everyone has a phone, right? And everyone is constantly filming or watching something on their phone just in our society. So someone holding a film up in public is um, not going to draw the attention of council workers or whatever. I'm sure you could go to Bondi Beach and probably shoot <laughs> a pretty decent film really quickly. You would never be able to do that on a traditional camera. Um, so you do get access like that. Um, they also say like documentaries, it opens yourself up um, People open up a lot quicker because they're used to having a phone now in their face and they're also heaps smaller um, than a traditional camera. So people are finding when they're shooting documentaries that with the smartphone there, um, they're getting uh, better quality or just better interviews quicker, I guess. And Angela, for the people who, young filmmakers who are listening, who want to produce a film but don't necessarily have an avenue to do so, but are hearing, wait, there is a, a, this place here for me, what would you say to them? Yeah, I say do it. Um, I read this quote. Oh, I should remember who said it. It was some one of the top directors. I read it this morning on Instagram, which was like, um, any advice that they had to a filmmaker was to pull out your camera and shoot a film, like just make a film. So I'll say pull out your phone because, um, I mean, you have there's so much memory on phones these days, right? You just put it to the cloud or whatever you have anyway. Film, 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 film. Um, there are no excuses now. There's no yeah. excuse. You've got it in your pocket. It's a full HD camera, you know? It's like, and it blows up amazingly to yeah, a big screen. It, the stuff at the SF3 looks great on the cinema screen. I was really surprised when I went. Yeah, it's right. It's at Chevelle, right? Which is a massive cinema. We have it in the big cinema at Chevelle, and it blows up amazingly. Mm. Fantastic. So that's SF3. That was Angela Blake, and you can see the festival very soon in Sydney and all around the world, indeed. Yeah. Angela, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So we'll be back very shortly talking all things Star Wars and Star Wars spin-offs. Stay tuned. Fresh perspectives on local and international stories. Once you get out, you're on your own. If you get the gutter again, you go back where you come from. We want to leave this country in as good a state as when we first came. There's a neighbourhood and a wealth in our neighbourhood. You can have too much dignity in this world. The Wire, weekdays at 6pm on 2SER 107.3.
How can Australian businesses compete if they pay more tax in Australia than big multinationals? Our gender pay gap is disappointingly widening in Australia. That means you can close the bank doors and try and bring some sanity back to the marketplace. We all make mistakes. You're looking at one of the great mistake makers of the world. You've got to ask yourself, what does the Sydney of 20 years look like? Tax relief, cutting red tape, grants being available. On the money, Money Talk, Mondays at 7pm on 2SER 107.3. Where are you getting your daily dose of reading? Are you an ardent bookshopper? Are you an e-reader fanatic? Do you ever get out and hit up some live storytelling? My name is Andrew Popel and Final Draft is, of course, that half hour every Saturday morning where we sit back, relax with a good book and talk reading and literary culture. Final Draft, books, writing and publishing. Telling stories is such a human thing to do. Saturday mornings from 10 on 2SER 107.3. Hi there, I'm Jake Morecambe, one half of Gay Panic on 2SER. You can catch me and... Hi, hi. It's the guru of us, Jack Crane. And yes, Jack, every Friday evening from 7 till 8. And on Gay Panic, we look at everything sex, sexuality and gender diverse and unravel all the LGBTIQ issues that make up the wonderful diverse rainbow that is our community. And yeah, like you heard, Jack is the guru of us. And to find out what that means, you'll just have to tune in every Friday evening from 7 with myself, Jake Morgan and Jack Crane. That's Gay Panic on 2SCR 107.3. See you there. the radio your back porch on Thursdays with The Outpost at midday on 2SER with a fill of Roots and Americana followed by 60s and 70s rock revolutions on the hands of time at 2pm Thursday afternoon music on 2SER 107.3 and we're back with Film Fight Club now we have a request from listener Louise uh, in honor of May the 4th, which is this week. May the 4th be with you. May the 4th be with us all. And it is to discuss Star Wars spin-offs. And that is uh, particularly whether Jar Jar should get a spin-off of his own. Now, this may seem like a little st- bit of a strange suggestion, but I think it's a great suggestion. Because, you know, while Jar Jar may be the most hated character in the Star Wars universe... Oh, come on, Glenn. That's a bit harsh. Is it? Is it really? Seems pretty accurate to me. Yeah. But okay, he, all right. Okay. Okay. He's, yeah, everyone hates Jar Jar, but he's also the most misunderstood character in the Star Wars universe. And I'll tell you why. Many listeners will be familiar with the most read thread in the history of Reddit, and that is about Darth Jar Jar. Now, the thread contends that Jar Jar is actually the most evil force in the Star Wars universe <laughs> and is God. actually behind all the things that are just generally going on. Oh, my God. And the, 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 hold on. <laughs> there's, there's a lot to back us up here. Just, let's just think about this. It was Jar Jar who ushered in the death of democracy in the Galactic Senate. It was Jar Jar who was on the same planet as Senator Palpatine, who ultimately turned out to be Darth Sidious. What were they doing just sitting on the booth for all these years? How is it that Jar Jar has the reflexes of a Jedi? Not just any Jedi, but better than any Jedi we have seen. It was Jar Jar who introduced Anakin to Qui-Gon Jinn, and hence, well, the events of all the Star Wars films. There's a lot to suggest that Jar Jar is, in fact, uh, the most evil of all the Sith Lords, and I think it would be fantastic. You know, t- you know, we've seen Rogue One, we've seen all these great Star Wars stories, but to see a film which shows Jar Jar for what he truly is, I think that's what fans want to see. Yeah, look, that's all nice and true, but honestly, wouldn't you want to see a Jar Jar redemption story? 
I mean, he is the most hated character. I mean, we all think that. Even George Lucas hates him. Even George Lucas thinks he is quite a clown. So wouldn't we want to see Jar Jar find his Jarnus? You know, eventually realize who he is. A redemption story where he becomes a true hero. He's destined to be kind of a Batman-esque Jar Jar Binks Rises narrative. It would be a nice contrast to that. Would be a nice contrast to what is currently the uh, canon in the Star Wars universe, where Jar Jar, in the latest novel, he's a well, he's just rocked. Someone rocks up and they find they see a street performer they like, and oh wait a second, it's it's, it's no, Jar Jar just on some random planet. Look, clowns are sad people. Honestly, they're not funny. They're making everyone else laugh, but inherently they're quite sad. And Jar Jar, you know, if I was Jar Jar, I would be pretty terrified. Look at all these people picking on me just because, you know, I might have messed up a few times. Who doesn't? Wasn't Phantom Menace already Jar Jar's redemption story? Because we start off with Jar Jar, Jar, Jar is everyone's fool in the Gungan world, and then at the end of the movie, he saves the day, right? We say make a you, Gun, gun General. Yeah, yeah. That made no sense. <laughs> but then again, just by sheer force of, we thought it was, you know, a joke that he was tripping over all the stuff and destroying the droid army, but no, there was something much deeper at play here. I mean, with those reflexes, with that chance, I think it's, I think the force was at work. Yeah, I mean, if he is, you know, who he isn't, then he might probably be the best actor in the whole planet, and that would be amazing. But at the same time, I think we need to give Jar Jar more humanity. Right now, he's just a clown. He's somebody he, we laugh at. But we need to find the real Jar Jar. You know, what does Jar Jar think about Jar Jar? I'll be honest, as the outsider to this fight, this does sound completely ridiculous to me. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but, very serious, right, Chris. Right, right. But I'm also thinking, why not? Because we're reaching a point where there's going to be a Star Wars film every year. How much content is there in this universe to explore? And why, sh- if we're going to have that much Star Wars, why should every Star Wars movie be the same? Why can't Star Wars be completely ridiculous? Why can't we have Jar Jar Binks as the savior of the universe in slapstick absurdity? Why don't we explore Star Wars as a rom-com or a slasher movie? And not just this, you know, I want to see the cantina, one of the classic scenes in Star Wars. How did the band get there? What is their story? That music was great. I want to, I want to see more of this. <laughs> yeah. Why don't we have a concert film about about the cantina band yeah and the thing is star wars is too serious in the sense that it takes itself too seriously in fact it's not a serious thing at all i mean a lot of things are quite far-fetched so let's bring back the campiness because let's be honest it's taken with a pinch of salt this is to be honest uh, what virat brings up is the reason why i preferred the force awakens to rogue one i know this is another fight by the way wow this is this, this is a fight that's Definitely. Yeah, let's keep that for another day. All right, but I'll always go for campiness in my space operas over, you know, dead serious approaches. Anyway. Well, we do have uh, Star Wars films every year for the rest of our lives to look forward to, so oh, God. I'm, I'm sure, you know, <laughs> this will all get a chance. But to be fought out in the ring. To be fought out in the ring. Uh, we have to wrap up soon, but first we have our 30 seconds of excitement where we each get to say what we're pumped for in the coming weeks. I am pumped for The Circle. There's a Tom Hanks film. You very rarely get to see Tom Hanks play the villain. Uh, he is the most liked man in America, so to see him play a bad guy is quite fun. Although it says Emma Watson, who has had a recent boon with the Union and the Beast. It's a tech thriller, and it's, it's uh, coming out in cinemas in the next week or so, so something to check out. Well, talking of the circle, I just want to plug this really quickly. Uh, The film I talked about last week, Bahubali, The Conclusion, that opened in the US box office in Thursday night previews at the number one spot, beating the circle with 2.5 million at just one-tenth the number of screens. That is 
quite amazing. For like an Indian film to like be the number one at the US box office for previews, that has never happened. So I'm very happy about that. And because of that, I'm going to pump, you know, plug another Bollywood film for May 12th, which is called Meri Pari Bindu, which is going to be a rom-com mix of Ruby Sparks meets 500 Days of Summer, which is kind of a cool concept. So I'm looking forward to it. Bollywood is changing up how it does rom-com. So I'm pretty intrigued and so you should be as well because it's making some money. And money always dictates what is best in our world. That's slow, Chris. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to hear you talk about Bollywood in a future segment. That's what I'm excited about. <laughs> Great. Let us know about it. Teach us. But I'd also <laughs> like to plug uh, Sydney Film Fest is announcing its slate one week from today. I'm really looking forward to hearing what they're going to be uh, programming and possibly talking about that next week. Fantastic. So, and if you are listening to our podcast, you will hear soon a little discussion about a film that's in cinemas called Colossal. So please check it out on Falcon Screen. And in the meantime, have a great week. And remember, don't talk about Film Club. Unless you're promoting it to your friends. Yeah, when, when that's totally okay. All right. Goodbye. Good night. Good night. And we're back. That was... Oh, that wasn't it's been 10,000 years. 10, years. Wow, <laughs> such a long time. This is the Film Fight Club podcast, and it's kind of like the upside-down world in Stranger Things. It's just another dimension of film and pop culture. It's a radio show, but it's not on the radio? What is, <laughs> what is going? Oh, my God. What, what, what is this? And we are talking about a colossal film, incidentally called Colossal. Um, Which, if you didn't see, you made a colossal mistake. It, it probably won't be around in cinemas for too much longer, but uh, go check it out if you want to see it because, yeah, it might be your last and chance. And that's for a colossal mistake on the part of the distributors because you, you should play for longer. So many, so many puns here. So, much. Oh. so it is a film <laughs> with Anne Hathaway where she's living in a New York apartment with her boyfriend. He kicks her out. She moves back to a small town, meets up with people from high school, a bit of a, you know... That's that sounds pretty standard. Like, is it? If I, if I, I think that's basically it. Have I missed anything? Is there anything else that I mm, just could... just maybe a, a colossal aspect of the film is being untouched upon? Oh right, sorry. There, there is a monster wreaking havoc on Soul. That's the other side of the thing. Yeah, but and... it's not the monster you think. Oh yes, there's a the, the, the two stories are surprise surprise related, and we all we've all seen this. It's quite the picture of Rob. What was your take? Oh my god, I. I totally love this film. I'm going to go really gaga over it, so bear with me. You know, bear. But anyway, uh, you know, and the great thing about Colossal is not the genre bending. Yes, it's a dramatic comedy mixed with a monster film, but that's not his triumph. The triumph of Colossal is actually the political commentary. You know, that's interspersed in the narrative. Films like Get Out, Colossal, and Raw are working so well today because they're making a strong political comment, and albeit which makes it a bit uncomfortable about the time that we're living in today. And that's connecting with audiences. You know, you go in thinking you're going to be watching a monster film with some romantic comedy. It's got Anne Hathaway, it's got Jason Sudeikis, your perfect postmodern rom-com character. But surprise, surprise, that's not the kind of film it is. 20 minutes in and you just, wham, it hits you. This is not the film that you expected. Especially with the marketing. The marketing of this film was... Yeah, that's the one thing I think we could probably all agree on. The marketing... It's, it's not what you're going to expect. It from. sold this film short and made it look a lot dumber than it is. Yeah, it goes. It's it's a comedy in some senses, but it does get quite dark. Chris, quite intense. Um, this film has a very uh, strong tonal shift, which is 
look, I found personally the first act of this film completely uninteresting and found it started to get much more interesting and enjoyable as it started to veer into the territory that Virat is talking about. Oh, I totally agree. Yeah, in the the second act. But um, I was always at a little bit of a distance from this film because I don't think this tonal shift is completely... uh, I don't think it's as deeply handled or as richly handled as it should be. Um, the look, look, this is a giant monster film, so of course there's got to be a villain. And when the villain is introduced, it's a character that suddenly goes from zero to one million on the evil psychopaths scale very quickly. And in the first act, this film has, though it has this absurd uh, giant monster element, the character dynamics are depicted in the indie vein as you know quite quiet and realistic. You know, reasonably naturalistically handled. And I didn't think that this kind of world could support this massive, massive shift in characterization. So I would have liked to either have seen this movie taking place in a more crazy uh, comic book type universe or seen a more gradual progression into the evil that we see challenging Anne Hathaway and the monster later on in the film. What I did enjoy about the film was the range it gave its actors, and that's you just said, someone went from zero to, whoa, off the Richter scale. Mm. Now, Anne Hathaway, we know she is an incredibly talented actress, but Jason Sudeikis is someone who has got very similar roles over the course of a lot of films, and at least for part of it, you see, this is the Jason Sudeikis you kind of know from Horror Bosses and a number of other films, but he's a immensely talented actor who's looking for a film to showcase just what he can do and I think he might just have found it. Yeah, I mean, I watched this film twice already and what's really stayed with me and what I think the true horror of the film is and it's not the monster robots or the monster kaijus that appear it is that the portrayal of how niceness in our time has become a commodity that we expect to trade for sexual favours and that's a really, really contentious point and that made me really uncomfortable. It was really terrified. Well, it's interesting just how we deal with a lot of the complex issues, but in whether it's sci-fi or fantasy, and certainly this is on one end. You have, you know, the relatively traditional story going on in a corner of America, but then you have just this massive wreaking havoc in South Korea. And for in many senses, um, and it's parodically so, that there is an antipathy to it among so many quarters of the people we see in the films. Like, oh, this is happening, but oh, it's just on TV, we'll go to the next thing, What's, what else is on? Yeah, that was interesting. Um, it was interesting how it showed the characters having that opinion, but I would have liked to have seen the actual film show a little bit more interest in what was going on in South Korea. Um, because I found the concept of representing struggles between two white people in America with mass death in South Korea to be a little bit uncomfortable. I realize that spending, you know, the movie isn't about really the mass death. And it does go a little bit of the way to addressing um, the remove that we have from those characters at the very end of the film. But I felt like I could have connected more with this film if it had treated that a little bit more seriously. If, you know, we'd split between um, the fights between Anne Hathaway and her villain and, um, you know, maybe something a little bit more like a traditional monster movie on the ground in South Korea. So there isn't that strange remove of, uh, is this just metaphorical? Am I, you know, it was a little bit too grand a metaphor for me to be able to put this aside and, you know, that and care more about the fight between the two regular people than, you know, huge, huge death and destruction. Well, Chris, I think the extended metaphor is exactly the reason why the film worked for me, you know? Oh, I I don't disagree that the metaphor is good, but (laughs) I would have just liked to see more of a balance. I mean, yeah. You know, for me, it was the eventual horror, the the supposedly Mm -hmm. nice people on the surface can be monsters too. You know, it's the idea that 
monsters are not radically different people. They're just normal people. They do not have horns. They do not have visibly distinguished features. And, you know, it's pointing out the fact that, hey, what makes you a monster are your actions. They're not really, you know, physical characteristics. And that was quite powerful. And I, I love that metaphor. It was my favorite thing about the film. But at, at the same time, I feel it kind of let itself down because it ultimately eventuated in a flashback scene as we see so many of the films do and elements of very basic pop psychology and oh uh, it was this thing from their childhood or this or that and uh, but having said that um one of the most interesting elements was how he lampooned the director how monster <laughs> films are traditionally done because we see you know in all these films man of steel any else that you have all these people dying in these cities and no one really pays much attention and it was that here but he was kind of taking the mickey out of it and i think he did it really well uh, one more thing I'd like to point out, and you know, I was watching this film with a lot of other guys in the audience, and when these scenes were popping up, I could see some of them vis- vis- visually uncomfortable and shifting in their seats. And I think it's one of the sneakiest feminist films I can think of in recent times. And because I do not have the language to actually talk about these things with some of my, you know, guy friends, and I would like to discuss these issues with them, because I know that there is this sort of unspoken expectation that if you are a nice person, you get things in return. And that's not how the world works. And this film kind of touches upon that. But I do not know how to talk about this. It's a very endemic thing uh, uh, for some reason. I think the internet has a lot to do with it, but it's another conversation entirely of a lot of people, uh, men of, of my generation. But I'd like to see this handled in a more subtle approach. You know, I, um, I liked the metaphor. And I liked. I always <laughs> like blowing small things up into to huge proportions. But well, I, do, I, I don't think, think it's a small thing. I think it's a no, 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 no. Yeah, oh, thing. no, it is. I agree. But I mean, small in proportion to the way it's represented on screen <laughs> in a bit mass okay, chaos. Yeah. But um, no, it, it's a very interesting subject that I think deserves a, a approach that allows for shades of gray and not the you know, really over the top depiction it has in this film. I think you needed that over-the-topness because we've tried the nuanced discussion and that doesn't work. I think we need to call it out now. And I think if it makes people uncomfortable, so be it, because that's the point. But maybe showing uh, the this kind of real-world villainy on such a huge scale allows the people who um, maybe need to hear this message to be like, oh, I'm not actually like this person. Maybe they won't see the connection to small-scale acts of destruction when we need, you know, in order to make this palatable as a comic book-esque film, um, the the way that women are objectified and controlled you know, is blown up to massive, unbelievable proportions. And I think that's where Jason Sudeikis' performance really comes in, because I think he really sells it. He's the sort of guy which a lot of, you know, modern, postmodern sensibilities kind of emulate. You know, he's a sort of perfect postmodern rom-com lead. He's been playing that with sleeping with other people, tumble down, a lot of, you know, we're the Millers, a lot of those kind of guys who are quite witty, self-aware, self-deprecating. But here, he's just a little bit off-kilter. And when that hits, you suddenly realize, hang on, I might not be that different. And that's the really scary bit. Yeah, he does sell it very well. Um, I will give the writer-director Nacho Vigolando credit in that you know, it's probably hard to get the, to use the, the stereotype, probably nerdy, um, probably pop culture obsessed uh, people who tend to be the perpetrators <laughs> of entitlement in their approaches to women yeah. um, to go and watch a movie about men's feelings of possession of women and how that can lead to a domestic abuse type yeah. uh, relationship dynamic. But he's probably pulled that off by uh, building this movie around alien monsters exactly. and robots. 
No, it's it's a fascinating film and something you definitely want to get a taste of if you just see the promos and don't see it itself. It is in cinemas now. So we're going to have to wrap up, but we will be joining you next week for more Film Fight Club. And remember, do not talk about Film Club. Except when you're promoting it. So it's pleased to. Yeah, except that, that, that's all right. Tell your friends. Tell your friends. Right, or your enemies. Yeah. All right, good night and enjoy movies. Good night, everyone. <laughs>